Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the science of happiness, strategies for life satisfaction. My first guest is Dr. Katherine Sanderson. Let's get to it. Happiness is something that we love to talk about around here, but really, we're talking about something much more deeper than happiness. We're talking about living a life that is positive, optimistic, full of opportunity, and really creating a life that is sustainably good. My guest today is going to help talk about mastering a mindset to improve happiness, health, and longevity. And my guest is Dr. Katherine A. Sanderson. She is the author of The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. Welcome, Katherine. Thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anybody that's writing shift-stirring material has a place on this show, and that's most definitely what you are doing. Talk a little bit about what brought you to write the book, because there are zillions of books about positive living out there, but this one is special. Why? Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I like to think so. So, I'll talk a little bit about what led me both personally and professionally to write this book. So in my professional life, I conduct research on the predictors of relationship satisfaction. I conduct research on a variety of health behaviors. And over the last about decades, the research in both of those fields that seemingly has really come together. So it used to be I had a line of research that looked at close relationships. I had a line of research that looked at health behaviors. And really within the last five to 10 years, it becomes very clear in the scientific data that those things are very intermingled, that people who are healthier have good relationships, that good relationships are an important aspect of having better physical well-being. So on a professional level, my work really combined those two areas, which is what led me to professionally be interested in this topic. But on a more personal level, and something I talk about a fair amount in my book, The Positive Shift, I am not somebody who is a naturally happy person. And I think one of the real exciting things about working in this field is that it taught me that happiness on some level really is within our own control, that even if we don't come to it naturally or easily, it's something we all can find and get better at. And I'm really hoping my book will give people the tools to do that. Well, I think it's titled The Positive Shift. You know, by shifting, it means like moving a little to the left or a little to the right. It's <laughs> it's not, 
It's not like uh, a complete overhaul. Yes. And I, and I love that insight that you've just shared. That's exactly right. That it is really doing some tweaks of our thoughts, of our behaviors, and so that we can all improve where we are in terms of happiness and health. But yes, it's a shift. It's not a total remake of our personality and well-being. And when we talk about the science of thought, what does the research tell us about how our thinking affects us? I mean, I think I know, and I'm, but, but I want you as the expert researcher to tell us. Sure. So one of the easiest explanations for this is something that we all know well, the placebo effect. So the placebo effect is, in fact, very much an example of how our thoughts influence our behavior. You give somebody a pill and you say, this is going to help your headache get better. And of course, we know that even if that pill contains no actual medicine, no real drug, having this pill that you believe will help your headache go away, in fact, leads you to feel better. And that's an example about how our thoughts, this pill is really going to work, help us feel better. And we can use science on the placebo effect and other sorts of strategies for changing our thinking to improve our happiness and improve our health. So what I hear you saying is that thoughts really do impact outcomes. Absolutely. 100%. So when your when your mother tells you, you know, that think happy thoughts, darling, there's something to it, even though it's kind of like it makes you want to gag, like, I don't want to think happy thoughts. I'm, but it... It, it, it does work. So how do we practice this? How do we put this into action to make that shift permanent or a permanent work in progress? Right. So it really takes effort. It's like exercise. It's like lots of other things. You have to make a deliberate attempt to shift your thinking and also I'll say your behavior in order to do things that we know will make us happier. Here's a really simple example. Many people, I would say even most people, might wake up one morning and say, you know, I don't really feel like going to the gym today. But you know, if you go to the gym and you spend a little time, you know, stretching or taking a yoga class or jogging on a treadmill or whatever, you know that after you do that, you're going to feel better. And that's one of the sort of examples of knowing, you know what, if I do this, I'm going to feel better. And similarly, we can change our thoughts. So for those of us who have a tendency to ruminate or wallow in negative ideas, in negative experiences, or even anticipate negative outcomes or experiences, we can shift our thinking so that instead we try to replace those negative, self-kidding, ruminating thoughts with something more positive or more uplifting through the comparisons we make, through the perspectives we have on things. So in other words, how we think about the world around us affects pretty much every aspect of our life, from how we age to our day-to-day experience of happiness or contentment to our health, even how long we live? All of the above. Yes, 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 and yes. Whoa. Talk a little bit about that, especially about the last one, about um, lifespan. So research has shown that if you ask people about their expectations about aging, so some people have sort of positive expectations, you know, older people can become wiser and can be useful and productive, et cetera. People who have positive expectations about aging 
live on average seven and a half years longer than people who have negative expectations about aging. So that's just a very simple and very consistent finding that our expectations about the aging process absolutely have an impact on how long we live. Wait a second. So if the average lifespan, I think it's somewhere around 79, something like that right now? Yeah, a little bit shorter for men than women, but yeah. So this is what, about 8%? I'm doing the math in my head, about 8% longer life? Yeah, something like, yes, yes. That's a lot. It's a lot. And it's something, again, that that is within our control. So there's certain things that, of course, we can't control. So we can't control, you know, our genes. We can't control, you know, uh, specific things that happen to us. But can we control our thoughts? We have some control over our thoughts. It's something we can do something about. Huh. That's probably the only thing we have control over, actually. (laughs) We're going to need to take a break. I mean, I want to hold this and come back to this part of the conversation to learn more about the work of Catherine A. Sanderson, PhD, and the book, The Positive Shifts. Please visit sandersonspeaking.com. On Twitter, Catherine is at csanderson1217. And on Facebook, Sanderson Speaking. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take the break, I want to thank today's show sponsor, Molecule. Molecule makes the only air purifier that actually destroys pollutants at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air we breathe. Molecule is backed by the EPA, and its air purification technology development was funded by the EPA. I live in smoggy Southern California, in an area that has been heavily impacted by two massive wildfires in less than a year. The air around me is filled with pollutants and allergens, which have aggravated my sinuses and activated my allergies. Molecule came to my rescue by helping to relieve my symptoms quickly with photoelectrochemical oxidation, Pico nanotechnology that eliminates allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. Molecule's technology has been personally effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people like me. I keep my unit in the bedroom because breathing clean air transforms the way we sleep. Molecule has already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. One customer even said that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule doesn't just have groundbreaking technology on the inside. It has a sleek aluminum design that makes it the apple of air purifiers. So why not join me in better breathing and receive a $75 discount off your first order? Visit Molecule.com and be sure to enter the promo code HH at checkout. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com with the promo code HH. Once again, M-O-L-E. K-U-L-E dot com, Molecule dot com, and the promo code is HH. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. When the wind blows you a kiss And what you got, hold on to this What is your happiness? What is your happiness? 
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the science of happiness strategies for life satisfaction with my guest today, Dr. Katherine Sanderson. Let's get back to the conversation. So Catherine, before the break, we were talking about how a positive mindset can impact our lifespan or extend our lifespan by as much as seven and a half years, which is astounding. Yes. That's a lot. It is. And, and what's particularly important about those findings is they control for other things statistically that you can imagine would expect, would impact lifespan, such as whether you smoke, how much you exercise, you know, gender, et cetera. So it's controlling even for those other factors. We're still finding an additional benefit. Yeah, it's that is amazing. I had not heard that number, but I will never forget it now. Let's talk <laughs> about social media and how it can make us feel both connected and disconnected. I'm glad that you referred to both of those aspects because that's exactly right. And what the research shows is that to some extent, social media really can hurt our happiness because we see all these images of people living these happy, glorious, positive, successful lives. And it can lead people to say, boy, you know, my own life just really doesn't measure up. You know, I'm not doing as well personally or, you know, professionally, et cetera. So in some senses, social media can really make us feel lonely and more self-critical. But social media also does have a role in bringing people together, that it's a way in which people may find support. It can be especially useful for people who are shy. It can also be especially useful for people who are suffering from things they may not have people in their daily lives be able to relate to. So particular, you know, low frequency chronic diseases or terminal illnesses or particular traumatic life experiences where finding people online can actually provide a sense of community. Very well said. So in other words, if we're spending our days trolling on social media to see what he or she is doing, probably not such a good idea for happiness and, and well-being. Mm. But if mm -hmm. we are looking to connect with others who have a similar shared experience because we want to create community, probably a good place to find some. Exactly. Yeah. So vice virtue. Um, let's talk a little bit about happiness and aging. And I'm, I'm thinking of that U-curve study that was done a few years ago, but maybe there's, there's more research that's been done since then. That is actually the state-of-the-art data right now, that if you look across not only the United States, but in fact the world, happiness tends to follow a U-shaped curve across the lifespan, meaning that people in their teens and early 20s are the most happy, then happiness drops right up until sort of late 40s, early 50s, and then you see a rise in happiness in the 60s and the 70s, and they've studied people up to age 85. So the U-shaped curve is very consistent and, again, is found across cultures. Which is amazing. So for, for, for those of you that haven't heard of this study, that, you know, there's, there's good news for aging, for happy aging, that the older we get, the happier we become. And I think the theory behind it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Catherine, is about we care less about what others think of us as we age, we're more comfortable in our own skin, the pressures of daily life in, in terms of um, active parenting are reduced. <laughs> yeah, true. The other really interesting finding about an explanation for this U-shaped curve is that people in their younger years 
tend to prioritize having lots of relationships, so sort of high quantity of relationships. And people in their 60s and 70s and 80s basically are prioritizing quality relationships. So they're more comfortable having fewer relationships, but they're with people who they really care about and who care about them. There's a wonderful Peanuts cartoon that I think perfectly illustrates this finding, and it says, as we grow up, we realize it is less important to have lots of friends and more important to have real ones. Yes. Uh, makes good, perfect right? sense. Really, really yeah. good. Really yeah. good. I want to ask you about our maladaptive thoughts and behaviors about what happiness is. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the research indicates that if we're going to use our money to buy some happiness. Many of us think it lies in the fabulous Jimmy Choo's or the handbag or the great car. <laughs> but, <laughs> and those are all lovely things, by the way. True. True, right? True. Okay. We're having girl talk here. It's true. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but only Is that the end of the interview? Just yeah, exactly. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the caveat, the big but is that Ultimately, we derive the most pleasure from the experiences that our money can buy. Yes, that is absolutely true. So if we have a choice of spending money on belongings or experiences, overwhelmingly, the research shows that spending money on experiences, travel, uh, tickets to Hamilton, uh, tickets to the Super Bowl, you know, whatever, big ticket experiences give us longer lasting happiness in part because we get to anticipate those experiences. We get to experience those experiences and we get to reflect back and relive them. And all of those things increase our happiness. And when we talk about recalling positive memory and emotion in terms of a positive psychology intervention, the ability to recall those precious moments can stimulate elevation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas those Jimmy Choo's, you get them and you are super stoked for the first time you wear those puppies out, but they're not going to work for you as much with that elevation in the long run. Well, you adapt. I mean, the challenge is you adapt and then it's just like there's an old pair of shoes and yeah. you don't get that same benefit. The other thing that's really interesting, and I think your examples perfectly illustrate this point, is that when we buy possessions, we are by and large buying them to use alone. So you're not, you know, sharing your shoes or your purse or your computer or whatever with your friend or your spouse or whatever. When we have experiences, we often do those with other people. So they're not just experiences, they're shared experiences. Yes. So we typically, you know, travel or go to a fancy restaurant or a concert or a play or whatever with someone else. And that sharing probably also increases the value of experiences in a way that belongings and possessions that are typically used alone don't really give us that same value. Point well taken. What about the nature of gratitude, thankfulness, and giving and serving to others? Those are some of the very best ways to increase our happiness. So people who donate to charity, higher levels of happiness. People who volunteer in their communities, higher levels of happiness. People who reflect in their own lives, 
on things they're grateful for, things they appreciate, and express that gratitude towards other people. Those are all things that lead to consistent elevation in terms of happiness. And what we just spoke of, these three little interventions are really easy to do. Very easy. So simply making a little note in a journal every night before you go to bed of two or three things you're grateful for in your life right now is a very simple, very short, very cheap way to remind yourself what you really should be focusing on. And people who do that in a sustained way experience higher levels of happiness. And I think there are lots of apps today that you can even get for free that like will ping you at multiple times during yeah. the day so you can record your gratitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they do work. I mean, for, for those of us out there who have been depressed or lean towards the depressed side, which I'm, I am one of those formerly depressed people, I know that that practice is extremely helpful for um, giving me perspective. And that's a perfect example of shifting your mindset. So instead of having a tendency to revert to negative patterns of depressive thought, having this little reminder of, oh, yes, this is what I'm grateful for is really essential. Essential, uh, hopeful and helpful. You know, that we really do have a lot more control than we believe ourselves to have, you know, the only, like, I think we, we talked about the only thing you can control is what's going on upstairs. You th- mm-hmm. we, we only think we can control our kids. Those of us parents who are, <laughs> <laughs> I've given up, I've given up that belief completely. Yeah, but. me too. How old are yours? Uh, mine are twenty seventeen and 14. So mine are 21 and 19. And like, I realized mm-hmm. about five years ago, huh, silly me thinking that I was in control. <laughs> We hope we're giving them the skills so they take good control over themselves. I think that that's another way of reframing it. Yes. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Wow. We have blown through this interview, my dear. (laughs) Come back and hang out with me. Well, listen, always love talking about happiness. And thank you for the good work that you're doing, sharing all of this insight on harvesting happiness to the world. Oh, thanks. It's, it's my passion project. You know, it's like it is my happy place, especially, you know, since I come come through it from the dark, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's well, more and sweet. And as do I. Right. And, and I think that's really what's essential for people to remember is that if there are people listening who are struggling there is hope. There is hope for all of us. Yes. Yes. I, I agree. And uh, maybe that's what we are, hope holders. You know, I say that to my clients sometimes. Look, my job mm. is to hold hope for you until you mm. catch on. I love that. <laughs> yeah. We're in it together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to learn more about the work of Dr. Catherine A. Sanderson and her book, The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, health, and longevity. And I'm so down on that longevity part. You can (laughs) go to her website, sandersonspeaking.com, on Twitter at csanderson1217, and on Facebook, Sanderson Speaking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take that break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. What is your- 
Alrighty then, we are back. We're talking about the science of happiness, strategies for life satisfaction. My next guest is Dr. Jennifer Gutman. All right. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation about mastering our mindsets to improve, well, just about the everything with ourselves, happiness, health, our perspective, outlook on life. My next guest has a very interesting approach to the good life. We're talking about sustainable life satisfaction and what exactly does that mean? Well, my guest today, Dr. Jennifer Gutman, is going to explain it. She is a leading cognitive behavioral therapist and clinical psychologist with more than 20 years of experience. Welcome, Dr. Gutman. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, well, I, I'm thrilled to have you on the show because you're, you're on to something that is unique and motivational. Talk a little bit about the Sustainable Life Satisfaction Workbook. So Sustainable Life Satisfaction is made up of six components, and I can talk a little bit about the six components, but basically they came out of work that I had been doing on myself over a long time (laughs) when I realized that I was not living personally a life sustainably satisfied. And also as a result of me noticing that People were complaining of not being happy and realizing that that same word was something that people were complaining that I wasn't. People would say to me, how come you're not happy? And all, especially when I was a child, because as an adult, I think people have seen me as, as a, a happy person, although that's not a word that I love to use. I like to use the word contentment or satisfaction more than the word happy because I think happy has a connotation that is something that is hard for people to achieve just based on how our brains interpret the word happy. But as a child, it was a very common thing for people to ask me how come I wasn't happy. And it's true that as a child, I was shy and awkward and fearful. And so it became my life's work to try to figure out how I was going to overcome a lot of those things. And there were a lot of barriers in the way. And over like 20 years, I figured out a bunch of techniques that worked for me and then called those into what ended up becoming the six components of sustainable life satisfaction. And one of the jokes that I say to people all the time is none of the things that I ask people to do, I haven't worked really hard on myself. Amen, sister. Right. And I love what you say about like, like happiness because it's a highly overrated word. Highly, highly overrated word. In fact, what's so interesting about it is if you look up in the dictionary, the word happy, the the definition of the word happy actually is contentment, which is so funny because the synonyms for the word happy are things like joy and buoyancy and effervescence and beaming and grinning and sunny and radiant, which is so funny because if you look up the definition of contentment, you're not going to get the same things as you're going to get as the synonyms that you're getting for happy. So there's a bastardized synonym for happy that has nothing to do with the definition of happy. And yet when people think about happy, their brains are interpreting it as, oh, if I'm happy, I'm supposed to be joyous and buoyant and effervescent, except that really happy means that we're supposed to be content and satisfied. And vernacular is extremely important in terms of our brains and how we think about how we're supposed to feel. And if we told ourselves, oh, I'm supposed to feel satisfied or I'm supposed to feel content, although 
maybe that's not as sexy, it would give our ourselves a sense of a very different landscape for what we were supposed to be experiencing. So I like to tell people that satisfaction is more of a sense of being at ease or content with your body and with your mind and with your situation. It's that fulfilling feeling you get when you've done or you're in the process of executing something that you wanted to do and the pleasure that you get from fulfilling your wishes and expectations that you have of yourself, which is a very different experience than just joyous or radiant, which is a much harder thing to have sustainably. Those experiences you can have in moments, but they are fleeting, whereas satisfaction is something that you can have in a more ongoing way. Let's talk for a minute about the six components of sustainable life satisfaction. What are they? So what they are is the first one is um, starting is easy, closing is hard. The second one is decision-making. The third one is facing fears. The fourth one is reducing people-pleasing behaviors. The fifth one is avoiding assumptions. And the sixth one is active self-reinforcement. And I can tell you a little bit about each one of those if that would be helpful. Yeah, I want to hear about all of them. But I want to start with going backwards for a second, that you being the uh, consumer of your own counsel, because that I think is really interesting and very empowering. You know, most of us who get into the helping businesses, you know, we do so, <laughs> right? right? Yes. We, we come to this, <laughs> this path because it resonates yeah. on some very deep core level. Yep. hundred percent. Okay. So for me, I had a terrible time making decisions as a kid. I was a huge people pleaser, very awkward, shy, didn't talk to a lot of people. I was extremely insecure, did not feel like I was lovable, couldn't imagine that if I didn't feel lovable, why anybody else would find me lovable or likable, and did not feel very effective in the world at all. And I sort of went out into the world like that, quiet, and spent a lot of time initially playing a lot of video games, which is kind of amusing because if somebody were to talk to you now and ask if I had ever played a video game in my life, people <laughs> would be look like, at you. Jennifer <laughs> played video games. <laughs> and I can tell you that's true because I used to play asteroids in Pac-Man, which people would be like, she know she knew about asteroids. <laughs> and Pac-Man. Well, um, <laughs> you, we're dating ourselves because we know Pac-Man. Know, totally. <laughs> totally. So, but then, so I did that, a lot of that through high school. And then when I got to college, I decided that instead of hiding, I needed to hide more in plain sight and pay a little bit more attention to what was going on around me. And maybe I'd learn more than just hiding. And that's what I did. And I started to come out of my shell a little bit more. And what I started to do at that point was face more fears. And that's where facing fears became one of the sustainable life satisfaction techniques that ended up being something that was incredibly important over the course of the rest of my life. And also something that became extremely important was me being authentic about myself because a lot of what I had been doing up to that point was how was I going to live up to everyone's expectations of me? And what if people thought differently about me than I thought about myself? What if they thought 
that I should do something differently than I thought, be something differently than I thought, and how could I be true to myself and true to them? And was that possible? And oftentimes it wasn't. And so that was a really hard and painful learning experience. And that's where a lot of the core component of decision-making in combination with facing fears came. So at that, it was at that point that I also was digging into learning about psychology, wanting to become a psychologist. And by the end of college, I had, you know, decided that I wanted to apply for a doctoral program. And I actually got rejected from all of the doctoral programs that I applied to. And here again, you know, life hits us with things that end up helping us organically become who we are. And a choice at that point was, okay, so I can lie down and decide that I'm not going to continue to pursue doctoral program in psychology because every place rejected me, or I could figure out something creative and, you know, continue to pursue this. So I tried to figure out creative angles so that I could apply again. And again, that becomes part of what ends up being sustainable life satisfaction. And I did apply again and I got rejected everywhere again. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. So I get rejected everywhere again. And then because I really do believe that things, doors open for you, depending on how much creative problem solving uh, and perseverance we have in life and how creative we are. Somebody did mention to me that a new doctoral program had opened and that I should apply for that because clearly I wanted to become, uh, get a doctorate in clinical psychology. And I applied to that program. I did get in. However, because it was new, it did not, it wasn't licensed yet. And I knew that in order for me to get an internship, it needed to be licensed by the time I graduated, which would be a huge leap of faith. So here we were back at facing fears. It had four years to become licensed or I was not going to get an internship. And the only way you really could proceed once you got a doctorate in clinical psychology was if you got an accredited internship. But I decided to do it. And it was one of the best decisions of my life. Wow. I had a great mentor, loved the program. The program was amazing. It did get accredited because things do tend to work out. And and then I got an internship that I loved, adored, and started me on a great path. But things in life do continue to hit you in order to, again, build up what is going to become who you are because... I did have a job after graduate school and tried to open a private practice and that failed also. So failure is part of life and figuring out how to respond to failure is part of life. And that is part of what makes up sustainable life satisfaction. How do you respond to failure? How do you internalize it? What do you do with it? How do you look at the outside world? And then how do you move on and how do you become resilient? This is a great story. I mean, hearing, hearing your journey, you know, from the challenges that you faced as a young girl to how you became Dr. Jennifer Gutman is very inspiring. And I think your willingness to share that part of yourself with us makes all the difference in understanding about the arrival of your book, A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction Workbook, and really what it means, you know, the trial and error that you went through. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Jennifer Gutman to learn more about her work and her workbook. Please visit www.gutmanpsychology.com on Twitter at Jennifer Gutman 
And on Facebook, that page is Jennifer Gutman Psychologist. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is an absolute promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about the science of happiness with my guest today, Dr. Jennifer Gutman. Let's get back to the conversation. Dr. Gutman, let's continue the conversation because you shared your incredible story with us in the first half of our interview, your journey from being maybe uncertain and persistent and resilient to getting through school and coming out the other side as a licensed clinical psychologist. I want to talk a little bit about your transparency because this is unique for a psychologist. Thank you. (laughs) I think that it's really important for psychologists, people to be genuine and authentic and to own their authenticity because a lot of people don't feel comfortable within themselves and owning their authentic selves. And the more people that can own who they are authentically, the more it will embolden other people to feel like they can be authentic and seen. A lot of people, one of the things that they struggle with is being seen. And something that I'll say to coworkers, friends, clients is, are you allowing yourself to be seen? Because some people don't allow themselves to be seen either by themselves, take ownership of who they are, or by other people. And some of that is you have to put out into the world enough information in order to allow yourself to be seen by others so that they know who you are. Yeah. And some of that is putting out who you are transparently. And Sometimes I say to people, you know, who you are may not be the first thing that someone loves. I mean, it may be that you are taking a path that somebody might not initially approve of, but the people that love you will come around because they love you. And so they will see that the path that you took, even though it may not be one that they initially approved of, they will see that that path makes you happy and that because that path makes you happy, it authentically makes you who you are. And they will come around once they see you and see what it's done for you. And that will make all the difference. And though it may take them a minute to come around, they'll come around. 
I love At what least you most, most people. Yeah, most <laughs> people <around>. will. <laughs> Not everybody. I, I can't promise that. The important people, the people that, it, it, you know, the people that can see will come around. There are people that are blind and can't see, but the people that can see will come around. So we're talking the V word, the other V word, as I like <laughs> to say. Well, that's what we call it around here. Oh, it's that V word, right. vulnerability, you know? And that's yes, scary exactly. when you talk yeah. about facing fears, which is point number three, right, of your six-part model, that facing our fears, which for many of us is being vulnerable, allowing ourselves to be seen. That and and it works in tandem with reducing people-pleasing behaviors because we people-please in order to subserve ourselves to other people's needs. But when we do that, we lose our authenticity. Because yeah. we're doing things for other people or in the service of what other people want from us. And then we become something that may be different than who we want to be. And the sa- by the same token, decision making is similar to that in that we delegate decision making to other people. And when we delegate decision making to other people, we lose the ability to lean into what would be the decision I would make for myself. And the decision that I would make for myself may be different than someone else's decision, despite the fact that they may have more experience than me. They may have led a different life than me. But the fact of the matter is they don't have the same DNA as me. They don't have the same fingerprint as me. And so because of that, how could they possibly guess about a decision for me the same way I would guess about a decision for me? Because in the end, decision-making is a lot about guessing. We hope we guess the, the best possible path for us. And if we don't, then we can creatively choose an alternative. But since it is about guessing, to assume someone with different DNA can choose for us is not really effective. And our authenticity lies in us learning to face fears to make decisions that are not people pleasing. And that's why those three components go together in order to become sustainably satisfied. And when you talk about educationally guessing, right? So you have, you have as much facts as you can gather, but it's still a crapshoot. It's still a, a guess. And you talk about delegating the decision making to others, but there are a lot of us that abdicate the decision making completely and allow it to just fall on circumstance. But in a sense, that abdication is a decision also. Oh, a hundred percent. I say that to people all the time. I'm like, make, not making a decision is a decision. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> like, absolutely. Yes. When you decide to avoid a decision, that's still a decision. Yeah. <laughs> the absence of a decision is a decision. So you could pretend to yourself that it's not, but it is. Or he's making me or she's making me. No. No, right. excuse me. Right. <laughs> no, right. no one's those making are, you. Those are all still decisions. Those are all still decisions. It's just that you want to be able to look back on that and then not feel like you are taking ownership for it. But you do still have to take ownership for the fact that you chose not to make the decision. Like in that, there is ownership in that. The fact that you let it go by, there is ownership that you have to take in the fact that you let it go by. Ah. <sighs> And therein lies the sort of uh, marquee, you know, you own your life. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. And in that, when you, when you learn to own your life in that is so much, it's there's self-confidence in that there's lovability in that there's self-worth in that there's self-respect in that there's so many things in that, that those are the building blocks of feeling sustainably satisfied. When you don't build all those things, there's no way people can feel satisfied. 
You know, I'm thinking about the story that you told in, in the first half of our interview, and I am really touched by it because it's like I, I close my eyes as you're telling the story and I see the struggle that you portrayed that you were going through. And and the fact that you were triumphant at the other side, which there's no reason why you wouldn't be right. You are resilient, hardy, smart, and you got it done. But it makes me feel more connected to you. We don't know each other, but this model that you've presented it through your work, the sustainable life satisfaction process is kind of magical. Thank you. That's what I mean. That's how I feel when I tell people, I'm like, it really does work. <laughs> and one of the things that I coined, like when, when you become good at it, and if you use all of the strategies together, because they really do work in tandem, they really do work together. One does lead and bleed into the next one, and they organically move together like an organism. And when you can use them all together, I coined a word called defiantly resilient. And I would consider myself defiantly resilient for things that have sort of knocked me down and forced me to get up. And there's, and I have tons of stories like that because that is life. And I'm, I'm not absent from life like anybody else. There's plenty of things I've tried and it didn't work out and I had to try again. <laughs> and so, and so the way that I think about defiant resilience is that once you have it, then you know that you can bounce back from adversity with positivity and strength and the ability to see that like you can charge ahead with a good outlook because you can problem solve the next situation again and you can problem solve it with the authenticity that you bring to the situation without listening to how somebody else would handle it because you know you and you've got it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Defiantly resilient. You know, and that's got that touch of badassery in there too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's good. Exactly. Like, like when I, I had pulmonary embolisms and I was in the hospital for a while and, you know, then they tell you, you know, when you're allowed to go back to work. And my feeling about it is like, okay, I get that the textbooks say this is when you're allowed to go back to work, but I live inside of me. And only I know when I can go back to work. And if I say I can go back to work sooner, then I can go back to work sooner. And that's where the whole defiantly resilient thing comes in. It's like the badass part of me. <laughs> like, so did I'll Je tell you when I can go back Wait to work. Wait a sec. Question. Did Dr. <laughs> Jennifer Gutman go AMA? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that. Okay. That's serious, girl. That's funny. Oh my gosh, we are nearly out of time. I want to make sure that we um, do a wrap and recap the sustainable life satisfaction model. But I also wanted to, uh, something popped into my mind as you were talking that failure is really an invitation to a different strategy, right? 100%. It's an invitation to find a door. There's always a door. There's never a room with no exit. You just have to have the flexibility of thought, calmness of mind, and the creativity to find the door and you will find it. If you panic, you won't find the door, but there's never a room with no exit. Failure oh. just means a new path. Love this. Love this. My guest today has been Dr. Jennifer Gutman. Quickly, before we go, Dr. Gutman, go through the six points again of your book, A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction Workbook. Number one, starting is easy, closing is hard. Number two, decision-making. Number three, facing fears. Number four, reduce people-pleasing behaviors. Number five, avoiding assumptions. And number six, active self-reinforcement. And the end result will render you a defiantly... Defiantly re resilient. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> to learn more about the work of Dr. Jennifer Gutman, please visit her website, www.gutmanpsychology.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Jennifer Gutman. And on Facebook, the page is Jennifer Gutman Psychologist. Oh my gosh, you have been a delight. I so appreciate you and the work that you've done. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Uh, I had so much fun. Me and thank too. you to your audience as well. Me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Katherine Sanderson, PhD, and Dr. Jennifer Gutman, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.